On this episode of the Highlander Podcast, we talk with Matt Kubel, founder of Pitch 6 and inventor of the iSend adjustable belay glasses. We discuss climbing in Logan and how he started a climbing company. Welcome back, everyone. This is Chase Anderson with the Highlander Podcast, and today I'm joined by Matt Kupel, the founder of Pitch 6 and inventor of iSend belay glasses. Thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. Yeah. Um, we were just talking about this off air, but uh, trying to figure out, are there any other climbing product companies in Cache Valley? And, yeah. we, and we don't know. And I don't know of any. I haven't I haven't heard of any either. So so really, Pitch 6, to me, is, is I, we'll just say, the first, there the first go. and only uh, climbing brand here in Cache Valley outside of our, you know, Elevation, the climbing gym. Um, but something that I will get into a little bit, but something I wish we had more of. So I'm glad that you, you decided to start a company around climbing. Um, what, what is pitch six, first of all? Well, so, uh, pitch six is, uh, I've ha- I've done entrepreneurial things for a lot of years and, uh, was contemplating what the next one ought to be. And I looked at kind of a collection of, and I've never, I've been a climber for a long time, but I've never done any uh, entrepreneurial ventures in that space. Um, and but I was looking at the kind of this collection of ideas that I have and decided that, you know, together those look actually pretty interesting to start a brand around. So I, I chose I started on a few of them uh, and then kind of centered around the first product, which is the this, these belay glasses where I'm calling them I send belay glasses um, as a great starting point. because It's a really it's a very differentiated product out there and something that I think people will, will really take to. So what what is the so belay glasses for those who don't know what what are belay glasses or, or do they exist on the market already was have, yeah so have they, they do. existed and what's what's different about your your glasses well so the the crux of it is as a climber climbers climb in teams of two one person climbs up a rock face and one person holds the rope on the other side and that holding the rope is called belaying and uh, the cliff faces that we like to climb tend to be, you know, hovering around vertical somewhere, either vertical slightly less or, or slightly or, or significantly steeper than vertical. And if you're belaying for a long time on a long route, you're, it's really important to watch the climber the entire time because you want to make sure you don't mess something up and, and give them too much rope or too little rope or do, do the wrong thing. So it's good to have your eyes on the climber the whole time. And so that means you're kind of craning your neck up as you stare at them during the for the duration of the uh, of the climb, and for long climbs uh, that can get literally painful. People actually have issues, you know, kind of uh, medical issues with their neck if they look up too much. So about 10 or 15 years ago, um, uh, a company called CU Glasses started in Europe. So they decided to put. Reading glasses have been out out for a while, which lets you put a book on your lap and read by look without having to bend your neck down to see the book. So let's say if you're laying in bed, and somebody looked at those and said, you know, if we turned those prisms over, we could look up and still have a kind of a neutral neck position or not have to bend your neck. So um, I think it's Ari Schreibner was the guy that invented these in, in Europe and came out with the CU belay glasses, and they've they they spawned many knockoffs of that and have had, have, have, have had great success. A lot of people consider it an indispensable piece of gear in their, in, their, uh, in their backpack. So they've been out for a while, uh, but the downside and the difference is they only elevate your angle of view by about 60 degrees. So, and we like to climb cliffs that are like 90 degrees or, or even steeper. 
And so you still, even at a 90, a vertical cliff, you're still looking up by about 30 degrees or more. And so, and that's kind of painful. So I created something that actually allows you to adjust the angle of view. So my glasses, the iSend glasses will send your view up the rock by everywhere from about 60 to about 120 degrees. So you can really on almost any cliff belay without having to bend your neck at all. So what did, what was that process like? It's, it's an incredible idea. Um, it's interesting that no one else has done this until now. Um, well, it's actually kind of interesting because I've talked to a lot of climbers over the while because I've been working on this for a couple of years um, and have, have had prototypes out there on the crag for, you know, a while, a good chunk of that time. And everybody came up and said, oh, I had that idea. I wanted to make them adjustable. And it's, you see a lot of people that said, I thought of that first, um, but just didn't do it. So. so what do you think the difference is? Uh, that's interesting. Um, a lot of people have ideas. Why, why did you feel like this is something that you needed to do? Like, what was that turning point for you where you're like, oh, I have this idea. You could have brushed it off, but you decided to, to go forward and actually do something about it. You know, that overcoming inertia in life and in stepping forward and actually making something happen is one of the huge challenges that we all face all the time. And, and, and I creating things and thinking of things is something I can't seem to help but do. So I just, I'm just kind of wired that way. Some people are wired to write books or some people are wired to ride bikes, but in my case, I like creating stuff. So, so what, what did some of the first prototypes look like? Were they kind of handmade? Like you took some of the existing belay glasses that you had, took them apart, kind of cobbled together your own version. What, what did some of those first prototypes look like to when you were trying to validate the idea? Well, the first the first concept was just how to make a movable prism. So I, I was actually chatting with a friend that's a physicist of mine, and he's like, well, to make it adjustable, you just need to, to move the mirror on the bottom. And, and existing belay glasses, the way they're manufactured is it's a prism, it's a fixed prism, and then it has a mirror kind of electroplated on the bottom surface of that prism. So that makes it not movable. So I had to detach the mirror from the prism and then make it so you could rotate it around an angle. And so the very first prototypes were we 3D printed plastic and and uh, just proving the concept of can you make a, a prism that's adjustable. And once I proved that, then it was then it was on to okay, let's how do you actually make this into a pair of glasses? And started experimenting with that. And I uh, worked with a, a friend here in town that's a mechanical designer, and we started proto prototyping up some stuff and and with 3D printing and, and proved that it could work and slowly refine those prototypes to the point where it's, okay, this is something that might be manufacturable now. So it sounds like it was really just kind of a scrappy process, just coming together and and um, just finding a way to, to validate this idea. You know, there's um, so many tools for prototyping these days, rapid prototyping. It's, it's inc incredibly fast and, and easy now. So, so really there's no excuse not to do it. There's no excuse not to, and it, it takes a long time. And it takes a lot of effort. Yeah. Don't want to underestimate that at all. But but no, I mean anybody that wants to do something, you should start just do it. Right. Um, so this takes me to to Kickstarter. Um, any of these projects need funding, right? Um, what what was your train of thought when you decided to go the Kickstarter route? Um, I, there's a lot of benefits to doing that, right? Receiving validation, getting the money up front from from people who who want to buy the product before you've even really manufactured them in, in some cases yeah. what was the what was the motivation for funding this on Kickstarter well it's it is it's exactly that it just it's getting some market validation before you go go the entire direction down the the productization path in my case I took it a little bit further 
than most. I actually built injection molded plastics. I, I validated the idea enough with individual people seeing my 3D printed prototypes and saying, okay, that's going to work, that I believe in it. So I took it a little bit further, and, and that's allowing me to deliver. We, I've, my Kickstarter has been final for a week, and I'm going to be shipping glasses next week. So so we're, we're very, it's a very quick time from end of campaign to shipping stuff. That's pretty unusual, I feel like. It seems like most Kickstarters, it, it gets funded, this, this wild idea that somebody has, and then you're waiting yeah. you know, for, for all the pieces to line up afterwards. That's right. I think that's pretty abnormal. Yeah, and, and so I'm, I'm doing what I'm calling a pilot run, which is I, we, I bought enough, enough units to build a, a small run. And so I think I'm, this, the Kickstarter was about 150 units or something like that. So I have enough parts to build those, and that's what we're going through doing right now. And then a larger production run I'll do it's towards the uh, end of the first quarter next year. Right. So your goal was ten thousand. You exceeded that. Yes. The thirteen over thirteen thousand dollars. Yes. Where did uh, you know? Obviously, a great success. Where? Maybe we'll get into this this question in a, in, in a minute. But um, what was what was the legwork needed before you launched? Like, what did that look like? I think a lot of people see Kickstarters and say, oh, cool, I have an idea. I can just put it on there and, and people will find it. Yeah. That's not the case, right? There's so much legwork that happens to like set the stage for a successful Kickstarter. And in a lot of cases, people have funding lined up like right when they launch it, yeah. um, knowing that they're going to get funding. What, what was the legwork that, that went into the Kickstarter beforehand so that you knew you were setting yourself up for success? Yeah, and I, I think that is important. And I, I kind of split the difference. There's some folks, and I didn't start quite early enough. I'd say the, the typical thing is you should start three to four months ahead of time with getting the word out there and getting people excited about that. Um, I was a little reticent to do that, so I started about three weeks ahead of time. And so my first day funding was about 20% of the goal. Uh, some folks get funded the entire way the first day, which is a lot less stressful, uh, <laughs> I'll say. But uh, but yeah, definitely any product, you know, it's, it's products are always 10% inspiration and 90% perspiration. And that's a that's absolutely true. And, and marketing is one of the things you really need to focus on. And, and I'm an engineer by training, and so marketing isn't really my sweet spot, but you got to do it. Right. So what do you think was, uh, what, what made this Kickstarter successful? I'm sure, obviously, great product, great yeah. idea. The video is great in communicating why it needed to exist. What were the other factors that you feel like helped take it over the edge? It's just, I'd say legwork. I mean, I, I uh, probably 80% of the pledges pr were people that I met in some way, shape, or form, either on social media or in person. I did demos at climbing gyms. Uh, I know a lot of folks in town here. I've been in the climbing community for a long time, so I know a lot of folks there. Um, so we got pledges from that, and then just the broader climbing community that I've met over the time. So that, that kind of personal outreach, people connected with the story and why you're trying to do it, and uh, would pledge that way. So that kind of leads me into the next question. Where did most pledges come from? Was it Logan? Was it... Uh, certainly, nationally. getting getting off the ground. Logan was great, and Salt Lake was great. I, I lived in I've lived in Salt Lake for a while, so I know a lot of folks down there. So they really helped kind of get things launched off. Um, and then the U.S. was was the main focus, and we have some international as well. Great. So, do you have? Is there any kind of like ratio, like uh, how much funding you got, I, like in state versus out of state? I'd just be curious. Kickstarter to see how doesn't do a very good job at telling you where they're from. In fact, they don't tell you at all. Oh, so you actually have to survey people after the fact. Mm. Um, I can see it from you know I have Google Analytics and that kind of thing plugged into the campaign, so you can break it down from there. And so probably 
85% are US based and the, the rest are international. Right. Oh, that's interesting. Um, so that, that kind of leads me, you know, to the what we talked about at the beginning. Why is this the first climbing company that we've seen start in Logan? And maybe there's others that we're not aware of. And um, I'd love to hear about them. But why do you think Logan could be a great uh, destination for for our climbing companies. Well, I mentioned this. I, I say this a lot, but I and I said this to you before we went on air. But I think Logan is a is a mountain town that doesn't really know it's a mountain town. You, you look at the assets, the outdoor assets that we have, the the skiing and the climbing and the and mountain biking and all that kind of stuff, and it's phenomenally valuable assets. You know, on par with some similar towns that have a lot of tourism based in them, and, and Logan sort of doesn't just doesn't carry that identity, whether that's from, you know, lack of tourism and, and, or promotion of the tourism opportunities or not, I don't know. But uh, but you just don't sort of see that mountain mindset coming here so much. Yeah, I think there's huge potential as well. That's something that I'm really passionate about. And one of the motivations for starting this podcast is um, there is entrenched, entrenched perception of what Cache Valley is and what it's known for. And I think the only way to start to to change that perception or, or, you know, just start to show people that Cache Valley is an outdoor community is you've got to start telling those stories, right? Mm-hmm. And those stories have to be spread. And, and um, you have to highlight those people who are um, just saying, I, I love to be here and I'm going to start this thing. Um, I, and so that's why I respect what you're doing yeah. um, is you're building something here, even though there isn't really a precedent for, for climbing companies to start here. And so that's really the motivation for this is we need to highlight these amazing stories of people who are building great things. Right. Yeah. Um, from, from a climbing perspective, Logan has got a ton of uh, great rock climbing right here in town and, and, and within two hours drive, there's phenomenal stuff as well. So Utah is a hotbed for climbing in the West and in Logan, that's very true of Logan also. So my next question is, what is kind of the state of the climbing community here in Cache Valley right now? What does that look like? You know, I'd say that there's sort of two broad aspects of the community. There's kind of the the core climbers that live here permanently and, and are maybe a little bit older, and then there's the students that come in and, and partake while they're here. And the, the core climbing community is relatively small. Uh, we have some youth that are really getting into it, and actually that's a lot of growth through the climbing gym now, Elevation Climbing Gym, has done a great job at promoting a lot of youth team participation. Um, and so you're starting to see an upswell of, of younger people doing it, and then the old folks, there's just not that many of us around that are core part of the climbing community. So, and, But then a lot of students, but then they tend to be transitioning through. Right. So I, we, we talked with uh, Dayton Kreitz, who, is, who was the cash trails planner um, here for the county, and, and he mentioned building out this master plan for the trail system and that would connect uh, the city with all the, the, the assets that we have up the canyon and and he mentioned that a part of that is building out, you know, potentially a, a climbing master plan for for the county um, and for for the region. As as have you been a part of any of those conversations? He said that's that's not necessarily his role, um, and especially now that he's no longer with with the county. But um, have have there ever been discussions around that? It's like, what do we want our infrastructure and 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 what our climbing assets to look like, and how do we provide greater access to those resources? There has the been. So the Forest Service is interested in that. Um, I'm actually on the board of the Northern Utah Climbers Coalition. So there's a, it's a small group, and and 
moderately active, I would say, in, in main doing trail maintenance and that kind of thing. And we are trying to work with the Forest Service to come up with that master plan. And about two years ago, there was a lot of interest in it. And there was actually, and I can't remember her name right now, but she actually got her master's degree building out a climbing a management plan for the, the Logan Ranger District. And she left, after finishing her master's, she left. And I think that there's still interest from the Forest Service on doing something there, but maybe it's just not on the top of their list. And I know they're underfunded to do stuff too. So not a whole lot has happened there, but our, our hope is something will. Right. So how important are organizations like that, the Northern Utah Climbers Alliance? I, I know that in certain parts of the state, like Salt Lake, right, the Salt Lake Climbers Alliance, I mean, those are really strong, yeah, powerful organizations that go and, and get stuff done. Like how much is of that is, you know, you know, trail maintenance and, and upkeep and taking care of these these assets that we have? How much of that is these organizations these grassroots organizations that come together and yeah i'd say i'd say in logan in cash valley it's definitely nascent um it you know we've the organization's established it's a legal entity there's been some work that's done against it mostly in trying to coordinate with the forest service to try and get some trails plans in Mm -hmm. place and we've made some proposals to the to the forest services saying okay here's some here's some things we could do and and trying to get approvals for those is where it's at right now. So if the Forest Service can come through with those approvals, then I think we can then put a team in place to actually execute that. Right. And is the Northern Utah Alliance, that is that just Cache Valley? Is it that, is. Okay. It is. Yeah, it's focused in Cache Valley. So, um, so yeah, there's a, there's a few folks that are kind of compelled to do something there. And if w- once we can get a go-ahead from the uh, Forest Service, you'll see some action. Oh, that's great. That's exciting to hear. Um, can and you out, outside of that, I'd say – like things like bolt maintenance and that kind of thing is done on you know individuals are taking the initiative to do that. Yeah, who's who's doing that right now? Is that you? I'm, I'm, doing, I'm doing a little bit of that. Uh, uh, Brian Hestatoon down at the gym yep. is doing a lot of the, some of that as well. So he and I and and some other folks, uh, Dan from the Outdoor Rec Center is working there too. But we've put together some rebolting kits and that kind of thing to help that and, and done some rebolting. So that that's the amazing thing to me. Uh, seeing the climbing community is it's 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 largely put upon the climbers to go and and make sure that these places are safe right and and that they're kept up and protected and um i think that's a really interesting aspect of the climbing community that you don't necessarily see in other sports i don't know if yeah there's there's a lot i mean there's such an objective hazard with climbing right you you're 60 feet up the wall and if something breaks you think bad things can happen and and none of us want to see that both from an individual perspective but also from a we have there's recognition about what it would mean for access as well so there's a strong uh, awareness of that so what do you think uh you alluded to this a little bit but what do you think could be done to strengthen the climbing community that's here i think there's huge potential with with the amount of students that come into town to introduce new people to the sport um you know and i think the university's done a great job providing you know you've got a climbing gym there you've got elevation that's very active with the students um what do you think could be done to strengthen the community? Whether, and I'm not just talking, you know, a university student engagement, but is there something that the county could do? What would you like to see change to, to better strengthen or embrace climbing community here? I think, I think actually, you know, there's probably a few things. Definitely the youth programs that we have in place, and I actually coach at Elevation. I'm, I coach the advanced team down there. Um, so th- that's a great thing because we have th- in in five years ago there were two kids on the rock climbing team Mm. today there's probably 50 Um, so there's a lot of youth that are going that and they're slowly getting older and going to be graduating into becoming their own independent climbers and they're all you know excellent rock climbers already and getting better every day so that's definitely that youth groundswell would be one thing 
I think some of these projects that we talked about doing a group of, tr- you know, getting together as a group under Forest Service sanctioned trail maintenance would be a great thing too. That would really bring people together. Uh, and, and that would help these things like the Northern Utah Climbers Coalition really get off the ground and be something folks can identify with to give back to the community. That's great. Um, yeah, we, we always like to ask those who come on here like what they'd like to see improved and maybe inspire some action uh, from the community. So, um, you know, kind of off topic a little bit, what, what is your background? Like, where, where are you from? How did you end up here in Cache Valley? Why do you stay? I, I kind of wanted to cover a few of those things, but wh- where originally are you from and how did you land in Cache Valley? So I grew up in Wyoming. I was born in I was born in Wisconsin, but grew up in Wyoming. And then I kind of, when I graduated from college, I wanted to stay in the West somewhere. Colorado, I kind of felt like I knew what Colorado was all about because I lived really close to there. Um, but then I, I moved. So I, so Utah was an interesting location. It had a lot of high tech jobs, and I'm an electrical engineer by training. So Utah was a pretty good fit for me, and had good rock climbing close by. So that was great. So yeah, I moved to Logan. My first job out of college was here. And I have also moved into Salt Lake and other places. I came back maybe six or seven, eight years ago now uh, for family reasons and have been here ever since. So, And I'm pr- fairly embedded in the community now. I've been doing climbing stuff uh, for a long time. I do a lot of first ascent routes up the canyon. Um, I coach the youth team here, so I'm, I'm fairly integrated. So I'd be point. curious, what, what are some of the first ascents and how much uncharted territory is there for up Logan Canyon to, to explore? There's, really there's a fair bit. If you're willing to hike a little bit for stuff, there's lots of rock up there um, to, to do, and some of it very good. Um, I've done you know, f- probably 40 or 50 routes up there total. Wow. Um, t- they tend to be concentrated on a few different particular cliffs that I've developed. So if, if, if you, anybody listening is a climber, a rodent ranch, I did almost all the routes there. The Wall of Colors, I did all the routes there. Did some at 385 and a few other ones scattered here and there. So that's that's the other thing. interesting thing is about climbing is how, how is some of this documented? Like how do other people discover that these places exist? Someone could go and, and bolt all these areas, right? But yeah. how... Is, is there a good climbing map right now that exists? That there, there's, a guide, people? there's a guidebook for the canyon. So Casey Heyer developed the guidebook. He lives. He did live here for a while. He's down in Salt Lake mm-hmm. now, and that's the most recent guidebook. But it's probably 10 years old by this point. Mm-hmm. Um, and so Mountain Project is a website that is the common place for documenting these things right now. So with the, the Wall of Colors, which is one that I put up about 11 routes there, I just put it on Mountain Project. Mm-hmm. I p- wrote up a little topo and put a few pictures out there and route descriptions and stuck it there, and people have found it. Oh, really? Okay. That's great. It's that That's the interesting thing that I kind of come back to is is Cache Valley could be an outdoor destination, but it, it really takes, like, individuals doing this type of work. Yeah. Um, and imagine if, if all these people could come together and, and talk about, well, this is what we'd like Cache Valley to be. Um, and we could celebrate the successes of those who are out there documenting and, and making the work happen. How much further could we go? Yeah. They, um, in some places, you know, route, climbing route development is all on an individual by individual basis. They're uh-huh. funded by, it's funded by people, you know, being interested in doing it for themselves and buying gear and doing the routes. Um, it would be interesting from a tourist perspective to have some sanctioned things where actually the you know, co- county does that or something like that. That could be interesting. And one place that's done that in Europe, they have a lot of via ferratas, which are, mm. 
kind of the Via Ferrata stands for Iron Way, and you can go climbing without really being having to know how to climb. Right. Uh, up tall mountainsides, and they've done a little bit of that down in Ogden. And right. We've got cliffs that could be useful that would lend themselves to that as well. Right. What What would that take? Is that Is that just someone from the county who recognizes the potential and the opportunity and yeah. and sponsoring it? Yeah. Similar to what they did with with trails. Yeah. You know, liability is a whole other issue that Europe doesn't seem to have as much problems with that. But uh, to do it right, a via fraud, I think there's some real expense there. Right, sure. Um, but expense that the, the city and county have been willing to to uh, to fund in the case of trails, right? They see yeah. a real potential in funding trails. Um, it seems like that's an interesting conversation that could be had in, in behalf of introducing people to climbing. Yeah, um, as an extension to, you know, building trails that go to the base of interesting cliffs and then do a Via Ferrata up the side of them, that's pretty cool. Right, yeah, and, and Via Ferrata seems like one of those that you can get someone who's, who's inexperienced, right, Absolutely. to get in there and just get up on, on the rock, and, and maybe that's their first introduction, right? Yeah. Um, oh, that's great. This gets me excited. Once, once to, I hope people mobilize from this and, and we try to make stuff happen. But um, so you mentioned some of your entrepreneurial activities. Is, was Pitch Six your first in the outdoor space? Yes. What, what, what have been some of your other I've some, done some other projects. ones, some uh, uh, anal- software analytics stuff. I'm an electrical engineering background, so and, and done software management for a number of years. Uh, so some uh, anal- software analytics and also um, some home automation stuff. Okay. Wow. That's great. So is that – so? And your day job is is more on software, yeah. software side of things. Yeah, I actually work at Space Dynamics Lab here okay. at, at Utah State. So. Right, that's great. Um, so, kind of going back to to Pitch Six, what what do you see Pitch Six becoming in the future? I know right now you're f- you're focused on the ice end and and getting that all um, you know produced and sent out. W- where would you like Pitch Six to be in the future? What are your I goals? I mean, uh, certainly a, a high level goal is. Um, you know, becoming a recognized outdoor brand that, mm-hmm. that people know uh, that that's super cool. Um, and but, but maybe it's a little bit bigger mission than that for me. One of the things I like is is combining, you know, margin with mission. You know, you have profit and that's certainly a goal, but you also have something you're trying to achieve. Mm-hmm. And in my case, my our, my one one line mission statement is ascending for this. And, and I'm, I hope that I see ascending in ways that certainly as a you know, I'm a climbing company, so ascending is climbing, but also it's it's growing or ascending as a person or as a community member or even a resident of the planet. So, one of the things I've done is is uh, I'm donating one percent of our revenue to outdoor to, to giving back to the environment. So we joined the one percent for planet cause that was started That's by great. Yvonne Chenard. So we're planting a tree for every pair we sell. So it's a very small drop in the bucket, but I'm hoping to at least raise awareness and, and make a small impact towards climate change issues, which I think are you know, kind of the issue of our time. Right. Well, I mean, it kind of goes back to it, it really just takes each individual, right, doing just a little bit that could change the perception of, of a community, right, and and it takes each person to, to solve some of yeah. you know, the greatest problems out there, right? So it's not insignificant. Yeah, I think I think it's all important. I mean, I actually was watching a uh, – listening to a podcast today about high-performance athletics, and it talked about uh, – uh, tennis players going uh, uh, Djokovic going from from being 250th tennis player in the world to the number one tennis player he improved his point efficiency from like point 48 he won 48 percent of the points and that was at 250th place to winning 52 percent of the points and that was the number one in the world so mm. a relatively small change in his performance led to big impacts in the overall thing so 
I think, yeah, we all have to do our part and hopefully eventually there's a sea change there. Right. Oh, that's a great lesson. Um, so you're probably knee deep in just trying to get this product out, out to the market, but I'm sure you've got other ideas. Yeah. Uh, is that, is that something that you have in mind? Pitch six, having a variety of products that yeah. this isn't going to be reserved just for, for belay device or belay glasses. No, right? no, definitely, definitely not. I think the interesting spaces to explore are, uh, things like just taking a systems approach, you know, so harnesses and backpacks maybe that work together or, or, in or adjustability like my glasses can most glasses today are fixed and my belay glasses you can adjust them to fit the particular situation that you're in so adjustability is a, and systems approaches are both two things that I think are a little bit underserved in the space um, also looking at you know how to handle in into the youth categories or even young children there's lots of people that are having children and still want to go rock climbing well how do you manage those kids when you're out there I've, I've been through that myself so um, have a few ideas there all right. Oh, that's great. Well, that's exciting. How how do people stay in touch and continue to hear what what you guys are doing and so updates? The Kickstarter campaign's closed at this point. Uh, so, but I did start a, a campaign out on kind of a in demand campaign on Indiegogo, which is another crowdfunding website. And very shortly, we'll have our own store set up at pitch dot com. That's all spelled out. Uh, so. Um, so yeah, we'll have a website. We do have a website today, but we'll have a bigger presence here starting early next year. Right. And then everywhere on social, Facebook, yeah, social media, Facebook, we're on, on all of those platforms. Well, great. Well, thanks for taking some time to come up and talk about this. Um, again, I I mentioned this earlier, but I, I just really respect people like you who are, have an idea. They love being here in this community. They see the potential. Um, and I, I hope you feel that, you know, people like me appreciate what you're doing to, to make Cash Valley more outdoor friendly place no, to live so that's great it's all it's a groundswell right each person does a part and eventually you make move move motion off that so. right absolutely well again thanks for taking the time and appreciate having you here thank you thanks thanks for listening to the highlander podcast for more outdoor stories and content connect with us on highlandermag.com mm-hmm.